Welcome to What Healthy Couples Know That You Don't, a podcast dedicated to helping you create the relationship you truly want. And now here's your host, licensed psychotherapist, Rhoda Mills Summer. Welcome. So glad that you're here today. Sexuality for women can be improved. Interview with Emily Nagoski, episode 50. Sex can be a very complicated business, very different from how easy it is on television. Today, I'm lucky enough to interview Emily. She is director of wellness education at Smith College, where she teaches women's sexuality. She has a PhD in health behavior with a minor in human sexuality from Indiana University, as well as a master's degree in counseling with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute of Sexual Health. I wanted to begin by thanking you for your book, Come As You Are, which prompted me to make a correction on the sexuality page of my website. I had one out of three women rarely or never orgasm in intercourse, and I had to fix it to 70%. And I did not dream up that number of one out of three. I got it from a workshop. So I was thrilled that to be able to correct my um, information for people. I was hoping you would begin by telling my audience about the dual control model of sexual response that Eric Jansen and John Bancroft developed in the late 1990s at the Kinsey Institute. Reading about it in your book sure improved my own understanding, and I've attended every sex workshop given by an expert and never heard about this before. I I lo- Go ahead. My favorite thing to talk about. Um, and thank you for mentioning that it was developed by Eric and John at Kinsey. I have a kid. People are like, Emily's dual. No, no, no. It's not my idea. There was a day that I learned about it. Just there was a day that you learned about it. And I felt my whole brain reorganizing how it understood how human sexuality works in our brains. Um, and I can't think about sexuality without using this framework anymore. And it actually is fairly straightforward. It posits that human sexuality in the brain functions just like every other system in our brain, which is that it's a combination, the dual control model, there's two parts. The first is the sexual accelerator or like the gas pedal that notices all the sexually relevant information in the environment, everything that you see or hear or smell or taste or touch or imagine that your brain codes as sex related and it sends that turn on signal that we're all at least a little bit familiar with in our life and it's functioning at a low level all the time including right now us talking about sex is this little bit sexually relevant so it's a little bit of turn on signal sent from our brain fortunately at the same time there is also our break the second part of this dual control model and the breaks are noticing all the very good reasons not to be turned on right now. (laughs) Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. So like you're out in public or this is not the right setting or there are relationship issues or there's a trauma history. Um, So your level of arousal at any given moment is this balance of how many of the ons are turned on and how much of the breaks are turning, are sending the off signal. Um, and usually when people are struggling, the typical advice 
if you're having problems with arousal, desire, orgasm, the typical advice is all kinds of stuff to add stimulation to the accelerator, which is great and can be lots of fun. But it turns out when people are struggling, the difficulty is not that there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. It's that there's too much stimulation to the brake. And this is what's so empowering about the dual control model is when you can identify the stuff that's hitting your brake, and it's going to be stuff like stress and exhaustion and relationship issues and body image and sometimes trauma and just or like it's not the right setting for us. in the next room. Exactly. Yes. And you don't want to wake them up. Exactly. All that stuff can hit the break. And once you know what hits the break, you can begin to work with the context you have to reduce the number of things that are going on that's hitting the break. It, it, it's just so wonderful to wrap yourself around a different frame of reference that can actually be helpful. And I just, I found it wonderful. Um, I'd love for you to tell my audience about, this is a quote, ultimate nerd evidence of the power of context to influence <laughs> your brain's perception of sensation. Yeah. So uh, this is where I get to use the phrase rat nucleus accumbens affective keyboard. (laughs) Everyone just fell asleep because I'm the biggest nerd in the world. Okay. So this is research out of the laboratory of Kent Barrage, who's an affective neuroscientist and the only affective neuroscientist to make me laugh out loud with his research. Um, So here's a study that the folks in his lab did. You take a rat and you insert a probe into the nucleus accumbens, which is this small thing in the emotional brain of a rat. Uh, It's a painless procedure. They say in the research, painless procedure. Um, And when you zap the front of the nucleus accumbens of the rat, it starts to behave in the world. It it starts sniffing. It goes, oh, what's that? It starts to explore and move toward things. These are approach behaviors, right? And then when you zap the back of the nucleus accumbens of the rat, it'll... uh, stamp its feet. It's called defensive burying. Uh, and it's kicking up dust in the face of the predator, basically. Goes, yeah, what the hell is that? And there's a video on YouTube of a rat doing this to a snake. And it totally works. The rat is like, whoa, buddy, get back. So uh, again, you zap the front, you move toward, ooh, what's that? You zap the back, you get move away, avoidance behaviors, threat responses. But The cool thing happens when you take this rat and you put him in, in the research, they call it the home environment. I think of it as the rat spa. It is silent and dark. It smells like his family. Like it's this very familiar environment. It feels very safe. Just imagine the most sort of relaxed and peaceful state of mind you've ever been in, right? That's the rat spa. And when they zap the front of the nucleus accumbens, in this context, the rat goes, oh, what's that? Ooh, ooh, what's that? Exploration moving towards. But then when they zap the back of the nucleus accumbens, what does the rat do? What's that? Ooh, what's that? It's the exact opposite response that we got in the other context. When your brain is in this calm, relaxed, peaceful, unthreatened state of mind, your brain will respond to almost any stimulus as something to move toward with curiosity even a stimulus that in a different context, it might've responded to with a threat response, with a, what the hell is that? Get away from it response, which is the beginning of the explanation of why something like spanking can be great in an erotic context where you're already turned on. There's lots of trust, great communication. You're already in an aroused state of mind. Your brain is ready to interpret a sensation that in a different context, it would respond to with a pain response. Yes. But then there's more. Then we get to uh, 
what I call the dance club situation, where we put the rat in a box with really bright lights. They're playing music really loud. The rat can't even just get used to it because they play the, at a different volumes. They specify in the paper, this is the part that made me laugh out loud, they specify that they are playing Iggy Pop. And I have wondered for a long time, like, why did they choose Iggy Pop? And it, I found that just this year, it's been four years, I just found out it's because uh, Iggy Pop is a Michigan alum and, and it was happened in Michigan. So there you go, Iggy Pop. And you can tell that it stressed the rats out because in this intense, noisy, bright environment, when you zap the front of the nucleus accumbens of this rat, what does he do? Yeah, what the hell is that? He gives a threat response. When your brain is in a stressed out, threatened, unsafe context, it will respond to almost any stimulus as something to be avoided as a potential threat, even stimuli that in a different context, it might've responded to as something to move toward with curiosity, which my favorite example of this is tickling. I know tickling is not for everybody, but even hypothetically, you can imagine a world where you're already in that erotic, playful, connected, trusting state of mind and your partner tickles you. That could feel pleasurable and fun and lead to other things. But if the same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you are angry with them, you want to punch them in the face, right? Yeah. It's exactly the same stimulation, but because the context is different, your brain literally responds to it in the opposite way with avoidance response. I know lots of people who come to me puzzled and confused because they're like, one time I approach my partner this way and I do this and they respond really, really well, but I try the exact same thing on a different day. And they're like, oh, get away from me. What's my partner's crazy. What's so inconsistent mixed signals. No, the context was different. Their brain is literally responding to the world in a different way. You need to pay attention to more than just touch me this way, don't touch me there. You have to pay attention to the context in which the stimulation is happening. Perfect transition. I love that. Uh, I love how your book helps people change their frame of reference about sex. You are so reassuring about what's normal. Would you explain to people what makes up the best context for sex? Everyone's different, of course. But for a lot of people, they'll find that the best context is one that is low stress, high affection, high trust, and not least, explicitly erotic. That is already sexy. Creating that context is not easy. If you got kids in your house, if you have a stressful job, uh, if there is a discord in your relationship, any relationship that lasts any length of time has some discord in it. So it takes deliberate effort usually like to say like, oh, just reduce your stress levels. Okay, Emily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so which is why I have a whole half a chapter on stress and yes. how to deal with stress. Like that's super important. But reducing your stress level, increasing the affection and playfulness, the admiration in your relationship, increasing the trust in your relationship. These are not usual like sex tips that people give in like, you know, a women's magazine. Uh, but those are the things that can really powerfully influence the context and increase your brain's fluidity, its ability to move into that hey, sexy lady, hey, sexy brother kind of space. Yes. I don't mean literal brother. I mean, dude. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, you touched I actually on- squicked myself on that. Interesting. <laughs> 
Uh, you um, actually segued again into the next question. Uh, anxiety is such an abundant problem in the world. Mm. Uh, could you share some more about how stress and love have the most immediate impact on sexual pleasure? Anything else you want to yeah. add? Absolutely. One of the things to bear in mind is that different people will respond differently to stress, stress, depression, anxiety, loneliness, repressed rage. We've all got it. Hopeless despair. Um, For most people, for maybe 80 to 90% of people, they'll find that they experience a diminished interest in sex uh, when their brain is in that state. But 10 to 20% of people actually find their interest in sex can increase when they're experiencing negative affect, when they're feeling stressed, anxious, depressed. Uh, And we don't know exactly why people vary, but we do know that people just do vary in this way. Uh, And so if you're in a couple where one of you responds one way and the other responds a different way, you got to work out a compromise of like recognizing that neither of you is broken, neither of you is doing it wrong. Your brains just respond differently to the world. Um, And one of the really fascinating things is the way stress and love can interact with each other because it turns out for people in a totally stable, happy, really like well-bonded partnership with someone, sometimes that's a context where it's very calm and peaceful and trusting. That's a context that does not spark a lot of spontaneous desire for sex, which people experience as really problematic and challenging and difficult. And like, how can I love my partner so much, be so happy with my partner and not feel spontaneous desire. Because for some people, it's the threat to the bond because sex is an attachment behavior that helps to bond us to our partner. If that bond is totally secure, then your attachment mechanism in your brain is not sparking and motivating you to go connect sexually to make sure that that bond is secure. My sister uh, has been married for a very long time. She's been with the same partner for 20 years. And, uh, she and her husband have the most exciting sex when he's gone away for two weeks. He was a high school music teacher and he'd go for 10 days to Europe and she'd sit at home, like eating Cheetos and drinking box wine, feeling an emotion she calls homesick, even <laughs> though she was at home uh-huh. because he is her emotional home. So it was when like some distance got created and she got a chance to miss him. So she actually felt emotionally worse. That desire built up to, uh, an increased desire for sex and increased pleasure when they finally got together. So it's people get confused about how can I be so happy in my relationship and yet have such low motivation. Whereas my partner, this is a long answer to your question. No, I'm happy um, with it. (laughs) Even, even though uh, my sister and I are identical twin sisters, right? Grew up in the same household, genetically identical. And yet we have really different experiences of the relationship between attachment and desire For me, when the attachment bond is threatened, that actually reduces my interest in sex. If there's any threat to our relationship and our bonds and our trust, I can't. I'm like, that hits my brakes. I'm not interested. Um, But when we're feeling really close and playful and connected and I've spending a lot of time together, that's when I'm feeling most ready and open and my break is totally off because the trust is really there. Does that make sense? Yes. And what I love about your example with you and your sister is how you're different and it's 
okay and normal for both of you in different ways. And I, I, yeah. that is a um, theme in your book that I think is so rich and important and helps people understand themselves, you know, and how they work. And, oh, well, maybe that's not so weird uh, or dirty Absolutely. or not okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so many women are self-critical combined with cultural myths like sexual excellence is simultaneous orgasm. Mm. Could you share your thoughts of how women can reduce their self-criticisms? So specifically when it comes to body self-criticism, like stress, yes. this is another one of those things that's, it's virtually universal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and my, my sister calls it the bikini industrial complex, <laughs> this like hundred billion dollar global industry that profits from us hating our bodies and buying whatever crap they're trying to sell us to help us change our bodies so that our bodies will be acceptable. That's true. I know far too many women who have sort of decided that until their bodies conform with whatever culturally constructed, fictional, aspirational ideal, until their body is that they're not going to even try for sexual pleasure. They don't deserve the pleasure that their bodies are capable of. And I want them to recognize that their bodies 100% deserve pleasure right now. Not when you change your weight, not when you change the shape of your breasts, not when your face looks different, not when your hair is different right now, today, exactly as you are. Your body deserves that pleasure. And yes, there are evidence-based strategies to help diminish the noise in our heads that the bikini industrial complex has put there. There are two examples right off the top of my head. One is the mirror activity that I recommend to literally every human who will listen long enough. Uh, And that is to stand in front of a full length mirror naked or as close to naked as you can tolerate and write down everything you see that you like. And of course, the first thing that happens when you try to do this is your brain floods with all the stuff you've been trained to feel critical about that's fine. Just set those aside. You can have those self-critical thoughts literally any other time. Right now, you're just going to focus on what you see that you like. If it is, you know, the color of your eyes, write that down. If it's your kneecaps, write that down. If it's your spirit, because you can see that in your eyes, write that down and then do it again the next day. And then do it again the next day and the next day. And the more you do it, the more you'll uh, become immune to those cultural messages that are trying to tell you that whatever's true about your body right now isn't okay. Because it turns out, you know how on the day you were born, most of us are lucky enough on the day we're born to be surrounded by adults who are delighted to see us, who see every single wrinkle and fold and hair as just gloriously beautiful and perfect. What I want everyone to recognize is that between the day they were born and the day they hear this, absolutely nothing has changed. Their body is 100% as beautiful and perfectly lovable as it was on that day. And every belief that we have about the ways our bodies are not perfectly lovable is all just the cultural crap that is trying to make us buy things. <laughs> That's so true. It is. Uh, you know, the uh, I, it brings me back to... Uh, when I was in Squirrel Hill National Organization of Women back in the 70s, I we moved to Pittsburgh. I didn't have friends. And I joined that organization as terrified as I was of the very wonderful women there. And one of the exercises they suggested, which I have used ever since, but it doesn't 
go well, that people don't do it, is to take a mirror and look at your vagina and take ownership oh. of it. And it's just amazing to me how many times I've suggested this. I go through a few decades of getting discouraged and giving it up because nobody's going to do it. But I found it so empowering. Like, it's like a part of who I am. Yes. And it was a wonderful thing. And when I read it in your book, I was just laughing at, okay, I'm going to go through a decade of suggesting again. (laughs) Yeah. I, when I was first being trained as a sex educator, I was 18 years old and a total like nerd. I did my homework no matter what. So when my trainer, Annie said, what everybody's going to do do when you get home tonight is you're going to get out a mirror and you're going to look at your own genitals. And I'm, I'm a good girl. I do what I'm told. And so I got like a little makeup mirror. I had to wash foundation off of it. And I went and I looked at my genitals for the first time in my life, yes. 18 years old. And I had this weird emotional experience of feeling like I was going to confront an enemy. <laughs> and that by itself was an interesting experience. But then I looked and as soon as I saw my own vulva, I burst into tears because it turned out that enemy I felt I was confronting was just a normal part of my body, just like the bottoms of my feet or my elbows. I didn't look at it very often, but it was there and it was a part of me and it belonged. And that moment actually is my touchstone for answering any question about sexuality. Because what I learned in that moment is that my own body is the ultimate source of wisdom and answers about how my sexuality works, what works for me, what pleasure feels like in my body, and what it is I want sexually. And every for each individual, that's true, your own body. How many of us get taught to believe other people's opinions about our bodies more than we believe what our bodies themselves are trying to tell us? And for me, going and looking at your genitals, like knowing where the clitoris is, important. Knowing where your clitoris is, is powerful. It changes everything when you know that your whole body belongs to you. There was a woman who tweeted me a story. She read Come As You Are, and then she watched her adult brother changing his baby daughter's diaper. And uh, she said, so I watched him change her. She was all clean and ready. When he came back with the clean diaper, she was touching her own genitals. And her brother says, "Uh uh-uh, don't touch that. (laughs) Like, what would he have said if his daughter had been, had a penis instead? Like a totally different response. And she's not going to remember this one moment, but it's going to form, it's going to accumulate with countless other similar moments to a weird belief that she doesn't know where it came from, that her body does not belong to her and is not hers to do with as she pleases, that it's up to someone else to decide how and when she touches her own genitals. And I want all of us to overcome all the stuff that happened long before we can even remember reclaiming our own bodies and integrating it into the rest of our biology. I, I really agree. Uh, my mother was diapering my son and she's, he started to play with himself and she said, you don't need to do that. <laughs> it, I just thought, oh my, no wonder it's taking yeah. a while to figure things out. <laughs> In your book, you say sexual right. can happen only if you are no longer curious. 
And I love talking to people about curiosity. So it really struck me uh, as being another important tool. Can you tell us more, a little more about that value of curiosity? Yes. So this for me comes from from the idea of, remember talking about like spontaneous desire not happening necessarily in a really happy, stable relationship? It's actually okay if you don't have the sort of spontaneous, ooh, I can't wait to have some sex. That's spontaneous desire. It's normal and healthy. Uh, Erica Mullen, the cartoonist who illustrated the genitals in Come As You Are, she draws spontaneous desire as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Kaboom, you just just want it. Um, And that's normal and healthy, and that's great if you experience it. But there's another way of experiencing desire called responsive desire. If spontaneous desire emerges in response, spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure, responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So instead of it just being kaboom, it's that, you know, it's Saturday at three o'clock and we decided you, me and the red underwear, you arrange for the childcare and you show up, you put your body in the bed with your partner, you let your skin touch your partner's skin and you explore with curiosity what those sensations are. You let yourself play and try new things. You know that there's not actually a script that you have to follow in order that behaviors have to go in. When you can play with curiosity and approach, then good desire will emerge in response to that. And also we know that curiosity in any other domain of our life goes away in certain contexts, right? If you're very stressed out, you don't want to explore or play or be curious. You just want to stick with what's comfortable and known. And when the sex is most analogous to curiosity, to exploration, it's not like a hunger. It's not like thirst. It is, it's curiosity and exploration. That's a true, like biological, literal fact. That's not just a metaphor. Um, When we understand that, then we have permission to let our level of curiosity vary depending on the context. And we know that if we begin with a curious exploratory state of mind, pleasure is going to emerge. And from the pleasure will come desire. I have this, uh, uh, do you know that people believe you more when things rhyme? It's not just they remember it better, though they do, they remember it better, but they actually believe you more if what you say rhymes. So uh, I made up a version of this that rhymes in everything. It's pleasure is the measure. Pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. It's not how often you do it. It's not how long it lasts or what you do or who you do with or how many orgasms you have. It's whether or not you like the sex you are having. Oh, yes, that's true. It really is. Most problems with orgasm occur because frustration does not fuel the accelerator. Frustration hits the brakes. Mm -hmm. Could you describe a solution to frustration with orgasm? Yeah, it's mindfulness, basically. Um, Mindfulness plus (laughs) <laughs> taking orgasm off the table. Uh, I thought so. Yeah. yeah. The classic long effective treatments for orgasm are about exploring with curiosity what different levels of arousal feel like uh, and taking orgasm off the table. That's not your goal. Because if you have the goal of orgasm and you get to quite a high level of arousal, your brain might start going like, oh, I'm really turned on right now. What if I have an orgasm? What if I don't have an orgasm? What if I never have an orgasm? What if I'm totally broken? What if I'm having an orgasm right now? And is all that chatter, is that hitting the accelerator? 
it's totally hitting the break. Or you think, oh, it's been 20 minutes. It's been 30 minutes. It's been 40 minutes. I'm like, my partner must be so bored and so frustrated. And I'm like, why is it taking so long? And that judgment about how long it's taking, that frustration with your own body is it's just hitting the brakes and making it take longer and reducing the pleasure that you're experiencing. So take all of those expectations off the table, take the performance demand entirely off the table and just notice what pleasure feels like in your body for as long. If like you want to just explore for 20 minutes, great. You want to explore for 45 minutes, great. Um, The worst possible outcome is that you will learn a whole lot about what pleasure feels like in your body. And that's a really good outcome. Yes, it is. I I love that reframing. It really helps free people up. Yeah. People get very wrapped up in orgasm as a measure of something or other. Um, And what I want people to know is that orgasm is a physiological response that sometimes feels spectacular. It can feel like, you know, turning the stars into rainbows. And sometimes it's just like a physiological reflex. It just feels like a rhythmic contraction to your PC muscle and can be actually a little annoying and irritated. And sometimes it's outright unwanted. Whether or not pleasure orgasm feels good is just as dependent on the context as tickling. It depends on the context. The measure of an orgasm or any form of pleasure is whether or not it's wanted and liked by you. The most common sexual dysfunction is low desire, which I hear about a lot. Would you review the ideas research says will help improve the context for improving desire? Yeah. So I, so again, the first thing for me is making sure people recognize that responsive desire is normal. Scheduled sex is normal. When we look at the research on couples who sustain strong sexual connections over multiple decades, they are not the couples who experience spontaneous desire and constantly can't wait to put their tongues in each other's mouths. (laughs) They are not couples who have wild adventurous sex necessarily. Some of them do, but some of them don't. They are not the couples who have sex very often. Hardly anybody has sex very often. We are busy. (laughs) So the couples who sustain strong sexual connections over multiple decades, it turns out, have two things in common. One, they have a strong friendship at the foundation of their relationship. They really trust each other. And second, they prioritize sex. They make a decision that it matters for their relationship that they show up at whatever, Saturday at three o'clock, you, me, in the red underwear. They stop doing all the other things they could be doing. And like we have, again, we're busy. Kids, work, family, friends. God forbid we just want to watch a little television sometimes. We set aside all that stuff and we create a protected time and space just to do this playful, silly, let's face it, pretty wacky thing that we humans do of touching our bodies against each other, putting parts of our bodies inside each other and sharing pleasure. It is an explicit decision that they make, they prioritize it. And is there anything that we do in our lives that's a priority that we don't schedule? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I, it's uh, when you're making a priority, you have to carve it out. That's absolutely true. Yeah. In summary, I want to quote from page 292 in your book to have better orgasms, turn off more of the offs and turn on the ons more gradually. Anything else you want to add in wrapping things up today? So uh, that's hilarious. I forgot that I wrote that. (laughs) 
But that's time listening. I'm like, yeah, that's completely and totally true. <laughs> and the other part of it is uh, how you get to that place in the first place of turning on the ons really gradually and getting rid of all the offs is the creating a context. Um, and I learned this great metaphor from a sex therapist named Christine Hyde in New Jersey. And she tells her clients, if your best friend invites you to a party, you say yes, because it's your best friend and a party. Uh, but then as the date approaches, maybe you start thinking, oh, we're going to have to arrange childcare. There's going to be so much traffic. I'm going to have to put on real clothes on a Saturday night. I don't know. <laughs> but you, you put on your party clothes and you show up for the party because you said you would. And what happens? You have fun at the party. Yeah. If you are having fun at the party, you are doing it right. And to maximize the fun at the party... You get, you make it a kind of party you really enjoy going to. Another sex therapist, Peggy Kleinplot says, what kind of sex is worth wanting? She also says, sometimes low desire is evidence of good judgment. <laughs> if the sex isn't worth wanting, no wonder you don't want it. So create a context that allows your brain to interpret the world as a safe, sexy, pleasurable place full of trust and adventure rather than a stressed out, worried state of mind where all you can think about is whether or not you are doing it right. So delightful. I am so honored that you were my guest today. Please go out, buy her book, Come As You Are. You'll be glad you did. Listen to me at Rhoda on Couples on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, the next episode will be in December. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to what healthy couples know that you don't. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes and help get the word out. To learn more or connect with Rhoda, visit therapyideas.net.